Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. For those of you who are here in the sanctuary, to those in the commons, those up in the balcony, good morning. To those of you who are at home and in warmer climates, welcome to First Baptist Church this morning. And would you please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and the second half of verse 31. And let me just say right from the get-go, this is one of those Sundays where Christy is not here, and so I am out of sorts. And so if this sermon kind of wanders and goes off the rails, you'll know exactly why. Um, I miss her. I do get to eat frozen pizza later, which I am actually quite excited about. Um, No kale salad at the Zacchaeus tonight. I think it's a DiGiorno night, which I'm all right with. That's, That's all right. So... And so far in our study of spiritual gifts, we have learned that spiritual gifts are special abilities imparted to Christians by the Holy Spirit to serve others for the glory of God. How many of you think you could repeat that from memory by now, right? Many of you. Let me say it again. They are special abilities imparted to Christians by the Holy Spirit to serve others for the glory of God. And we have also learned that amongst the spiritual gifts, there is much variety meant to operate in unity, like the Trinity, and also like the human body, which I think is a fascinating word picture that Paul uses for us. The metaphor of the church, the body of Christ, being like the human body, where every part has an important role to play, contributing to the health of the whole. And the implication is that when every part is not fulfilling its designed and given role, the body will be sick, and it will limp along and not performed as it was intended. But when every part in the body of Christ does fulfill its given role, here's the result. God is glorified, the church is edified, good triumphs over evil, And believers will live full and abundant lives, which is how it fits into this greater sermon series that we're part of right now, the fullness or abundance of life. And so it's no wonder that spiritual gifts are mentioned in 155 verses in the Bible, and the Apostle Paul devotes three chapters right here in the heart of 1 Corinthians to teach about them. For truly, spiritual gifts are a most excellent way. Spiritual gifts are a most excellent excellent way. But spiritual gifts are not the most excellent way. Spiritual gifts are a most excellent way, but they are not the most excellent way. And today's text will explain exactly what this means. And so would you please stand with me as I read it? It's short. It's only about three and a half verses long, but they are weighty, they are meaningful, and they are important. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 31, He says, and I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, in these few minutes that we have together this morning, I pray that you would make them count. I pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to listen and obey what it is that you would speak to us this morning. This is, this is kind of the, the crux of it all right here. So God, may we get it and be more than hearers of the word. May we be doers. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And so again, spiritual gifts are a most excellent way, but they are not the most excellent way. This was Paul's point in that second half of 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31. And he says, I will show you a still more excellent way. Because you see, there were actually three ways in the church in Corinth. Three ways in the church in Corinth, and ways referring to how they did life together, the, the, the kind of culture they created as a church. And sadly, the first way in the church in Corinth was lovelessness. It was lovelessness, as evidenced by what Paul said back in chapter 1, verse 10. You remember this from a couple years ago when we began a study in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Divisions and quarreling in Corinth, not, not what you want to be known for as a church, right? Oh, First Baptist, that's the church where there's divisions and quarreling. That's not really going to help your cause. Well, what, what was it that the Corinthians were fighting about? There's a, a long laundry list of things. Uh, they were fighting over which teacher to follow, which worldly teachings to embrace. They were fighting over issues of doctrine, issues of morality, the right way to worship and exercise spiritual gifts. And here, this gives you some clue. So divided was the church at Corinth that Paul had to rebuke them for their tendency and their habit of taking each other to court. They were suing each other, taking them to court because they couldn't agree, because they were divided and they were quarreling. It was a truly loveless church, which that in and of itself, that phrase should be an oxymoron, right? Two words that don't go together, a loveless church. A contradiction in terms, how can the body of Christ ever be loveless? Should never be. But that is, in fact, the first way of the church at Corinth, lovelessness. The second way in the church in Corinth was giftedness. Giftedness. It's interesting that at the very beginning of the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to them, he said this, he says, you Corinthians, you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. They had all the spiritual gifts, and he didn't have to convince them of the importance of spiritual gifts. No, if anything, he had to get them to dial it back a little bit, for there had been actually an overemphasis on spiritual gifts, which led to an unhealthy obsession regarding the spiritual gifts, especially those gifts that were perceived to be dramatic or supernatural. They had all the gifts. What they didn't have was maturity. 
They had all the gifts, but what they didn't have was maturity. And so Paul writes here in chapters 12 through 14 to correct them and to instruct them in the proper and mature exercise of the gifts. And so, without question, they were a gifted congregation, and this represents the second of the ways in the church in Corinth was giftedness. Lovelessness number one, giftedness number two. The third way in the church in Corinth was lovingness. Lovingness. Or it might be more accurate to say that this was God's intended way for them. This was Paul's hope for them, his prayer for them, his admonition to them here in chapter 13. He desperately wants them to not only be gifted, but to also be loving like Jesus. And the way he admonishes them to this end is by using math. Where are my math people? Yeah, yes. Thank you, Ben. I anticipated Ben would give a hearty response to the inclusion of math in the sermon today. So if you're a math person, we salute you, especially those of us who are no good at it at all. This is your day, all right? We actually have math in the sermon. And so Paul creates a formula, all right? He creates a formula to teach the Corinthians and to teach us about the importance of love and spiritual gifts. And here's his formula. It's very complicated. Spiritual gifts plus lovelessness equals zero. Spiritual gifts plus lovelessness equals zero. No matter how you want to say it, nothing, nada, not, nil, zilch, zip, any other synonyms you can think of for zero, you get the idea. And then he gives three examples of the formula in action in verses 1 through 3 of 1 Corinthians 13. And so let's look at the first of his examples of the formula in action, starting with verse 1, where he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, before we use Paul's formula, we need to define one of the variables, and that variable that we need to define is love which we actually did weeks ago in our study of the fruit of the Spirit, which was the very first fruit, was love. But it is worth a review here. The Greek word used here for love is agape, right? And it is defined as the steady intention of the will to another's highest good. The steady intention of the will to another's highest good. And this kind of love has five aspects to it. First, this kind of love is volitional. It is volitional, meaning that it is a matter of the will. It is a choice that we make regardless of how we feel. Oftentimes, it's in spite of how we feel. We don't feel loving, but we choose to love anyway. We choose what's best for the other even when we don't feel like it. We make that choice anyway. So by this definition, love is not something that you passively fall into or that you can passively fall out of. It's a very different type of love than what the world considers to be love. It is volitional. It is a matter of the will. Next, it is unconditional. Unconditional, meaning that it is, it's not dependent upon the recipient of our love being worthy of it. And I don't know about you, church, but I find that to be really good news because every single one of us is unworthy of God's love. Why? Because of our sin. 
Every single one of us has rejected him, spit in his face, figuratively speaking. We have all nailed him to a cross, making us as unworthy as they come. But God chose volitionally by the will to love us anyway, unconditionally. God demonstrates both volition and unconditional nature of agape love. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, not when we were on good terms with him and we were his friends, but while we were God's enemies, sinners, unworthy. It's then that Christ died for us, showing God's love. So agape love is unconditional. It is not dependent upon the worthiness of the recipient. And next, agape love is sacrificial. Sacrificial. We read in 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's the ultimate sacrifice, isn't it? To lay down your life for someone else. The ultimate demonstration of agape love. Commentator Kenneth Chafin, he captures the sacrificial nature of this love when he says it like this. He said, It is defined by God's action in sending Jesus Christ into the world. It was a love that reached out to those who did not deserve it, a love that put the interest of others first, a love that forgave people and started over with them, and a love that sacrificed itself for others. It means that caring, forgiving, spontaneous, redeeming love, which is the essence of God's nature. Isn't that beautiful? And we are simply, in our flesh, not capable of such love. It is only by the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling us that we would be able to love others in the way that God has loved us. Agape love is sacrificial. It is also practical. It is also practical meaning that it is about the business of meeting real, tangible needs. Anybody can say that they are loving. Lots of people say, I love you. But we all know that talk can be cheap, can it? Don't just tell me that you love me, although do that, but show me that you love me. Meaning that those who are truly loving demonstrate it through their deeds, through their actions. And that's why 1 John 3.17 says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth, practically. Agape love, love doesn't become agape love until you're actually doing something tangible with it. And you see, those who love this way, they're going to get dirty because they get involved in the mess of others, like Jesus did when he came to the earth. I think it's going to be an interesting challenge for the church around the globe to figure out how to best show agape love to these refugees who are fleeing the Ukraine. And I don't have an easy answer for you today, but as I look at 1 John 3, 17 through 18, you know, far be it from us to just simply worship in our clean, comfortable, hot sanctuary and not follow through and put this into action. Next, agape love is evidential. 
evidential, meaning that it gives evidence that we truly belong to God. John 13, 35 says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is how people will know or not know that you belong to Jesus. Not by your politics, not by your bumper stickers or your social media posts, not by your church attendance or church affiliation, not even by your spiritual gifts or your service, no matter how impressive that may be, but by your love. By your love. Love which is volitional, unconditional, sacrificial, practical, and evidential. So this is quite a different understanding of love than what the world has, right? You put it all together, and agape love is to be the defining characteristic of the believer. This is it right here. Love or not. And so it is no accident, as I mentioned earlier, that love appears first in the list of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, through 23. It has priority. It has supremacy. It is all important. And so with this in mind, let's apply it to Paul's formula. Let's go back to verse 1 of chapter 13. Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. The formula is this. Spiritual gifts plus lovelessness equals zero. So, which spiritual gift does Paul highlight in this verse? What spiritual gift? Tongues, right? Why does he start with this one? If he's going to give three examples, three verses, why does he start with the gift of tongues as his very first example? Reason is, it seems to be that this this spiritual gift was the one that was being most overemphasized and abused and then coveted in Corinth. Tongues became a badge of spirituality in that church. And those who did not have the gift or exercise the gift were viewed as less than, and those who did have the gift were viewed as those who had truly arrived. And so in that dynamic, there was a lot of lovelessness. And so Paul starts here on purpose. But when plugged into the formula, he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. The spiritual gift of tongues plus lovelessness equals empty noise. Anybody remember this? Remember what it is? The gong show, right? Chuck Barris, is that that guy's name? popular show back in the 70s. Some of you have never seen the gong show. Think about like America's Got Talent, but a lot rougher, (laughs) right? Um, People would do all kinds of crazy acts until judges literally couldn't take it anymore, and they gonged them. And so that's what I think of when Paul refers to speaking in tongues without love being a noisy gong. I think about the empty noise of the gong show, although it was kind of humorous at times, wasn't it? Paul also refers to tongues without love being like... Did anybody have one of those? Why? (laughs) Um, Did it scare you? I mean, I actually found this sentence um, describing these cymbal-clanging monkeys. It said, The monkeys are sometimes rendered with red rings painted around their wide-open eyes, creating an appearance some find disturbing. (laughs) 
perhaps explaining their many appearances in horror, sci-fi, and comedy media. And then I thought this, this sentence was interesting. They can also symbolize emptiness and mindlessness. So I don't think they had these back in Paul's day, but what a perfect example of the clanging symbols of empty noise. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Spiritual gifts, even the, even the spiritual gift of tongues plus lovelessness equals zero, just empty noise. Well, like any good teacher, Paul uses repetition to reinforce the lesson. And so he uses the formula again in verse 2, where it says, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. So let's go back to the formula again. Spiritual gifts plus lovelessness equals zero. What is the spiritual gifts listed here? There's actually two of them. There's actually two of them. The first is prophetic powers. Prophetic powers. And you might be saying, well, Chad, what about understanding all mysteries and all knowledge? I take those to be examples, or a subset of prophetic powers. You see, one of the things that we see in these verses is Paul will identify a spiritual gift, and then he will use hyperbole to take that spiritual gift to an extreme. Meaning, if I have this gift to the uttermost, to the extreme even, but have not love, the result is zero. So uh, some commentators see um, understanding all mysteries and all knowledge as separate spiritual gifts. Here, I think that they are the prophetic powers taken to an extreme. So the point being, why does Paul use prophecy as his second example in trying to teach this lesson? Well, I think it's because when we get to chapter 14, he is going to emphasize the importance in prophecy as a spiritual gift, especially in contrast to tongues. The Corinthians were placing the importance or the emphasis on tongues. Paul will place the importance or the emphasis on prophecy. But even the gift of prophecy to which Paul assigns such great importance, when it is combined with lovelessness, what does it add up to? Zero. Prophetic powers plus lovelessness equals zero. It is nothing. A classic example is the prophet Jonah, right? You know his story, very visual, very graphic. He was a man with prophetic powers and calling. He was called to deliver a prophetic message of salvation to the people of Nineveh, but he had no love for them and therefore no reward. History remembers Jonah as a big fat zero. Gifted, but loveless, much like the church at Corinth. Next, Paul uses the example of another spiritual gift. He says, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith, Okay, so there's the spiritual gift. Now he's going to take it to an extreme using hyperbole. So as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. So notice this isn't just some faith. How does he describe it? All faith. Again, Paul uses hyperbole to stretch it to an extreme. This is faith able to move mountains, which clearly means 
Faith that is able to work miracles, miracle-working faith. What an amazing gift. But as far as Paul is concerned, when plugged into his formula, even the spiritual gift of all faith plus lovelessness equals zero. Nothing. Well, knowing the Corinthians the way Paul does, he's certain they haven't gotten it yet. And so... This was a a loveless congregation marked by quarrels and divisions and an overemphasis on spiritual gifts. So he goes to verse 3, and he does it again. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. All right, so one more time, the formula, spiritual gifts plus lovelessness equals zero. And what is the gift that Paul identifies in this verse? It is the gift of giving. If I give... And to drive his point home, once again, he uses hyperbole to take that gift to an extreme. If I give away all I have, or, and, if I deliver up my body to be burned. And so the scenario is giving away all your possessions, or even giving away your very life, the way that so many martyrs have done throughout history. Those who are willing to give up their very lives for their faith, Surely such a gift of giving would be held in the highest of esteem, right? Elevated to a special place. And yet in Paul's formula, giving away all you have and delivering your body up to be burned, this spiritual gift of giving plus lovelessness equals zero, nothing. Now that phraseology is interesting there. It says, I gain nothing. I gain nothing. And this is perhaps a reference to eternal rewards. I have no doubt that those who give their lives here on earth will be especially rewarded in heaven unless they have done so without love. For as Paul says in the verse, even such extreme giving without love gains nothing. So, Here's my paraphrase for our text today. So you speak in tongues, or you prophesy, or you have incredible faith, or you even give to the extreme, who cares? Big, hairy deal. Because if you don't do it in love, it is all worthless. Now, let's ask the question for a minute, why? Why is it worthless? I mean, those are some good things. You give away all that you have? That's fantastic. But so I don't do it in love. Why is it such a terrible thing that I don't have love? Because the point of the spiritual gifts is what? 1 Corinthians 12, 7. We talked about this several weeks ago. To each is given, referring to spiritual gifts, the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That word manifestation in Greek, phanerosis, it means to make known. Spiritual gifts are first and foremost for the reason of making God known, to make our invisible God visible through his body, the church. And 1 John 4, 8 tells us anyone who does not love God does not know God. Why? Because God is love. Very simple, very logical. You cannot make God, who is love, known without love. And so exercise the gifts to the extreme all you want, 
But if it is done without love, it's going to miss the point altogether, which is to make God visible, to make him manifest. So for this reason, I think it's helpful to think about love this way. Love really is the circulatory system of the body of Christ. Love is the circulatory system of the body of Christ. If you remember back in your anatomy and physiology days, you know, each of us in our spiritual gifts represent a different part of the body of Christ. We, we keep coming back to that. Some of us are the ear, some of us are a leg, some of us are um, the heart, I mean, whatever part that you want to identify. But one thing that is true of these parts, they need life-giving oxygen and nutrients that are delivered by the circulatory system, which enables the parts to perform their God-given roles. And so spiritually speaking, love is that life-giving flow to the various parts of the body of Christ so that they are healthy and able to do exactly what they are intended to do. Love is the circulatory system. And without it, without love, without the circulatory system, the body of Christ is as good as dead. So according to Paul's formula, individually and collectively, the church without love is nothing. Commentator Max Anders, he sums it up like this. He says, throughout this portion of the chapter, Paul addressed several hypothetical situations in which he might do the most remarkable things imaginable. It seems commonsensical that these experiences should have value in themselves. But Paul responded that without Christian love, these experiences amount to nothing, just like the person who performs them. So let's finish up with application. Let's ask the question, how should we then live? I have three questions for you this morning and for myself as well. First question is this, are you more interested in fruit or gifts? Are you more interested, energized, intrigued, motivated by fruit or gifts? For the fact of the matter is, fruit is greater than gifts. Fruit is greater than gifts. Fruit as described in Galatians 5, through 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As important as spiritual gifts are, and I, I hope you get the idea, we've been beating this drum for several weeks now, they are important the church cannot be all that it is designed to be without the appropriate exercise of the spiritual gifts, and you personally will never be all that you were intended to be without exercising your spiritual gifts. As important as the spiritual gifts are, spiritual fruit is the true measure of spiritual maturity. Remember Samson in the Old Testament? You talk about somebody with spectacular gifts, right? but gifts without maturity, without fruit. But here's the problem. We need to catch ourselves in this. In our culture, what are we more drawn to, gifts or fruit? Gifts, right? It's gifts that draw us, gifts that intrigue us, gifts that attract us. Even in the church, we tend to value gifts over maturity. 
And in that sense, we're really no different than the Corinthians. As spectacular as spiritual gifts are, and they are, fruit is greater than gifts. And that should be our perspective as well. Second question, which way best describes your life right now? We talked about those three ways in the church in Corinth. Lovelessness, giftedness, lovingness. How is your life similar or different to those believers in Corinth? You know, we've discussed Paul's formula, spiritual gifts plus lovelessness equals zero, and his examples given in verses one through three, the corollary to that is spiritual gifts plus lovingness equals infinity because it has an eternal impact. It makes a kingdom difference in this life and the next, which goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. So which of these two formulas best describes you today? The third question, how will you love someone today, volitionally, unconditionally, sacrificially, practically, and evidentially? Would you this morning, in this moment, be courageous enough to ask the Father how he would have you make him known this week by bearing agape love. Now, I mentioned earlier, you can't do this by yourself. It is only by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit bearing the fruit of love through you that you will be able to do that. But God will take your willing spirit, your abiding in Jesus Christ the vine, and produce this fruit through you, making him known even when the object of our love is absolutely unworthy of that love. Again, this love, this agape love, is a choice. It is to those who are unworthy. It will require sacrifice. It will be practical. And it will give evidence of our walk with Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads with me? So, Father, um, thank you for Paul's recalibration of spiritual gifts. Thank you for him giving us this perspective. And as we have been highlighting and trumpeting and learning about the necessity and importance of spiritual gifts, God, may we never fall into the trap of the Corinthian church where we begin to elevate them and to exercise them in ways that are actually harmful because they are unloving. God, I pray that the identity of First Baptist Church more than it being a church that teaches truth, more than it being a church that has great programs and great classes, more than it being a church that does things with excellence, God, I pray that it would be known to be a church of love, where the people, the family, God's people love each other, but that love doesn't stay within the walls of the church. It spills out into the community. May the reputation of First Baptist Church of Cadillac be one of love. And may it start with me. 
May it start with each one of us who are listening to this this morning. May you lead us on a marvelous journey of agape love where you put us in uncomfortable circumstances and circumstances we wouldn't necessarily choose. But God, you do supernatural things through us because you give us supernatural love for even the unlovable. Thank you that you first loved us in our unlovingness. We love you back. And it is our desire to love others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.